Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. As we continue today in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we find that certain tribal and clan leaders of Israel have come to Samuel and they have announced that they want to be ruled by a king. This of course meant that Samuel wouldn't be top dog any longer. And neither would his sons that he had hoped might succeed him have an opportunity to establish a kind of ruling dynasty of judges. Now before we reread a portion of chapter 8, keep in mind that we are entering a section of the Bible that the more modern Bible critics have labeled as unreliable. And this because we seem to have on the one hand the Lord despising the idea of Israel instituting a monarchy and on the other hand becoming actively involved in the process and eventually even making our Messiah part of that new ruling class. But also keep in mind that despite these critics' claims, what is actually happening is that we are seeing the stark differences revealed between the God ideal of a king and a typically man-ordained king. So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 305. And we're going to read from verse 7 to the end. Adonai said to Shmuel, Listen to the people, to everything they say to you, for it is not you they are rejecting, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today by abandoning me and serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. Samuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people, asking him for a king. And he said, here's the kind of rulings your king will make. He'll draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots. To be his horsemen, be his bodyguards running ahead of his chariots. He'll appoint them to serve as officers in charge of thousands and fifties, plowing his fields, gathering his harvest, making his weapons and the equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters, have them be perfume makers, cooks, bakers. He'll expropriate your fields, your vineyards, olive groves, the very best of them, and hand them over to his servants. He'll take the 10% tax of your crops and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys, and make them work for him. He'll take the 10% tax of your flocks and you'll become his servants. When that happens, you'll cry out on account of your king, whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai won't answer you. However, the people refused to listen to what Samuel told them. And they said, no, no, we want a king over us so that we can be like all the nations with a king to judge us, lead us, fight our battles. 
Shmuel heard everything the people said and repeated them for Adonai to hear. And Adonai said to Shmuel, Do what they ask. Set up a king for them. So Samuel told the men of Israel, Each of you return to his city. Samuel went running to the Lord when those Israelite leaders announced their demands for a king and he was undoubtedly surprised and downhearted when Yehovah told him, go ahead and do what they asked. Further says the Lord, you know, they're not so much rejecting you as they are rejecting me. Now at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel had agreed that God would be their king. When the leaders argued with Moses and accused him of assuming too much power and behaving like a king, they said that the problem was that since Yehovah was their king, Moses was being arrogant. And after Joshua led Israel into Canaan and conquered it, and then later he died, the people's leaders stated they had no interest in a new central authority figure because God was their king. The truth is that all of these protests were hollow. They didn't ever seriously see God as their actual king. It was more of a pleasant and useful fiction designed to keep the twelve tribal chiefs in power with no one to lord over them. Using the God is our king mantra was about the tribal leadership finding a convenient excuse to retain their own personal sovereignty and authority over their respective tribes. A shofet, a judge, was God's earthly proxy to administer justice. A judge was the form of government that the... Lord wanted over Israel on an as-needed basis. A shofet was raised up by the Lord to carry out certain instructions that the Lord gave to him. And usually that began with delivering one tribe or another from foreign oppression. The position of king was, in God's eyes, already taken. He was the king. And a human judge was his underling. So when the leaders went to Samuel and insisted that he appoint a man to become king over Israel, they were effectively replacing God with a man. And so the Lord tells Samuel in verse 8 that Israel's doing nothing new here. It just feels that way. Because Samuel's being directly affected. Israel's not rejecting Samuel. They're rejecting Yehovah. However, says the Lord, a human king is going to rule over them them very differently than their divine king. And so Samuel is to speak to Israel that what they're asking for isn't going to turn out the way they planned. In fact, in verse 9, where most Bibles will say that Samuel was to warn the people, that misses the true sense of the meaning. The Hebrew phase is haid taid. And it means to legally declare. The idea is 
that God has told Samuel to tell these Israelite leaders that when Israel gets this new human king, a legal relationship between them and that king is going to be established that's quite different from the legal relationship that they've had with God up to now. And beginning in verse 10, Samuel outlines some of these differences. Verse 10 gives us a very interesting wordplay. It says that the people have ha-sha'al, a king, meaning they have requested a king. Later on, we find out that this king that the people have requested is Shaul, Saul, which literally means the requested one. God has quite a flair for the ironic. Of course, since the whole point is that Israel wants a monarchy modeled after the Gentile monarchy, so typical of the Middle East, then they can expect those same characteristics in their Israelite king. For instance, a national army loyal to the king will be established just as is done by the Gentile nations. Naturally, this is part of what these Israelite leaders actually expected and hoped for, a professional army to defend them. And this would not be an army of volunteers, like those who served Moses and Joshua and the various judges, who would come from their homes and gather to fight and then go back home afterwards. But rather, this army would consist of the young sons of the twelve tribes who were obligated to serve in the army full time at the king's command. Since all modern armies had chariots, then of course, some of those conscripted men would have to become human shields to protect the king by running ahead of and behind his royal chariot. He's not going to appoint the best and most able Israelites as his military officers, but rather they will be chosen from this select group who are the the king's most loyal soldiers, from among those who act as his personal bodyguards. Military leadership ability will be secondary to absolute allegiance to the king. Of course, an army needs food. And it needs weapons. So some of these officers will be in charge of fields confiscated by the king and the name of it being for the good of the nation. This nationalized food production for the military will go hand in hand with nationalized weapons manufacture. After all, the government comes first since the king comes first. Why does the king come first? Well, who owns all the land of a kingdom? The king. Who owns all the people of a kingdom? The king. Who owns all the livestock, all the agricultural produce of a kingdom? The king. He merely grants 
his people a certain kind of possession of land and animals as long as it serves his purposes. But that grant can always be undone or modified, and it often is, whenever it serves the national interest, meaning the king's interest. This is effectively how the Lord operated over Israel all these past years, but now a man was going to assume that position, and Israel would now trust in a human king to care for them, guide them, protect them, and establish justice for them. But see, it's not just the males who will be conscripted for government service, so will the women of Israel have to serve. They will be required to serve the king and his court by making perfume and cooking for them, for example. And of course, since the size of a king's court has much to do with his status, and in the king's eyes, the status of his kingdom, and since Israel has a very large population, well, Israel's king's going to need a pretty large court. And if the king of Israel is to retain his court's loyalty, they too will need to be properly supported and rewarded. And that will happen primarily by the king taking his citizens' vineyards and orchards and fields and giving them to important members of the government. But it doesn't stop there. What the king doesn't outright confiscate He taxes. And this is to support those in the government who aren't of sufficient status to receive any of the land or fields or groves that the king has taken away from his subjects for the national interest. Now please note, the tithe that is spoken of here, technically one-tenth, but usually quite a bit more, is not the same tithe that's to go to the support of the Levitical priesthood. This is in addition to it. After all, now that the government has established an army and a system of taxation and a bureaucracy to oversee it and an infrastructure to support it, then taxes will be needed. Does any of this sound very close to home? And what loyal citizen wouldn't want to help with all that? You see, in the Gentile human way of kingdom government, the king takes from everyone for himself and for his interests. This is in contrast to the God of Israel as king, who demands a tenth, but then uses it entirely to support his servants who are there for the benefit of the people. The divine king gets nothing. The tithe is actually for the people, since Jehovah has no needs, no aspirations of wealth and power. An earthly king has no end of needs, or more honestly, wants, and usually no end of ambition. But that's not the half of it. God says that since you Hebrews have decided to replace him with one of your own, fine. But don't come complaining to him 
about this Israelite king they want for themselves because he's not going to rescue them from this man. Here's a God principle. There are some things that we can choose that amount to a direct rejection of the Lord. And it's so offensive to him that he will allow us to live with our consequences more or less permanently. Don't expect him to fix it. Go to the king you preferred. Go to the one you chose. Let him fix it. That's what the Lord is telling them here. Predictably, the leaders of Israel, they weren't at all swayed by Samuel's argument that was really the Lord's words. So they merely repeated the key phrase. We want a king over us so we can be like all the nations. Many within Israel didn't want to be the set-apart people anymore. They didn't want to be a unique people for God, but they did want to be like all the nations. In reality, they wanted and expected to have it both ways. They wanted to claim Jehovah as their God and protector and benefactor and extract all the benefits that would come from that relationship, but they also wanted to follow the ways of the rest of the world and experience the personal pleasures and advantages of that anti-God lifestyle. I'm sad to say that the greatest portion of Israel today takes that same view. They feel that being the chosen has been much too much of a burden and that they would be better off if God chose somebody else for a while. Many have rejected God outright. Others simply want it both ways. The church, on the other hand, says to Israel, well, we got good news for you, Israel. God didn't choose somebody else. Us. Both sides are sickeningly wrong. Israel assumes that the cause of their current condition of being under constant duress and pressure for mere survival is simply because they were chosen. When in fact their condition is due to their abandoning the one who blessed them by choosing them. The church wants to claim exclusive chosen status. But then turns around and works like mad to become just like the rest of the world in every imaginable way. The church wants the blessings of salvation and peace and protection and prosperity from the Lord, but at the same time wants full freedom for all earthly pleasures, pagan ways of fun and celebration, and above all else, to be outwardly indistinguishable from the world. None of this worked very well for ancient Israel. It's not going to work very well for modern Israel, nor for the body of believers. In verse 22, the Lord tells Samuel to hearken to Israel's leaders and set up a king for them. Our complete Jewish Bible says that Samuel should do what they ask. The word that is being rather clumsily translated here is one we're all pretty familiar with. Shema. 
And Shema means to listen and obey. Or in this case, to hear and do. Hear Israel's demand for a king and do it. And this will be with Jehovah's permission. Samuel understands now that the direction has been set. There's no use belaboring the point. So he sends the delegation of tribal leaders back to their respective territories to await the Lord working out just who the choice of king would be and how it would be indicated to Samuel. Open your Bibles back up again. We're going to read uh, chapter 9. This is 1 Samuel chapter 9. First Samuel chapter 9. There was a man from Benjamin named Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Behrat, the son of Achach, the son of a man from Benjamin. He was a man of substance, brave as well. He had a son named Shaul, who was, a, who was young and good looking. And among the people of Israel, there was no one better looking than he. He stood head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Once the donkeys belonging to Kish, Shaul's father, got lost. And Kish said to his son Shaul, Please, take one of the servants with you. Go out and look for the donkeys. And he went through the hills of Ephraim and the territory of uh, Shalishah. They didn't find them. Then they went through the territory of Sha'alim and they weren't there. They went through the territory of Benjamin but didn't find them there either. And on reaching the territory of Suf, Shaul said to his servant with him, Come, let's go back. Otherwise, my father is going to stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. And his servant replied, Here now, there, there's a man of God in this city. A man who's highly respected and everything he says proves true. Let's go to him. Maybe he can tell us something about where we should go. But look, Shaul said to his servant, If we go to the man, what can we bring him? We've used up all the bread in our packs... There's nothing for us to give to this man of God. What do we have left? And the servant replied to Shaul, See, I have here in my hand a silver quarter shekel. I'll give it to the man of God to tell us which way to go. In Israel, back in the old days, when someone went to consult God, he would say, Come, let's go to the seer. Because a person now called a prophet used to be called a seer. Well said, and Shaul answered his servant, Come on, let's go. So they went into the city where the man of God was, and ascending the slope to the town, they found girls going out to draw water and asked them, Is the seer here? And the girls answered them, He's here. He's right ahead of you. Hurry now. He just came into the city today because the people are sacrificing today at the high place. Find him as soon as you enter the city before he goes up to the high place to eat because the people won't eat till he comes and is blessed the sacrifice. Afterwards, the one invite, ones invited will eat. So go on up, because this is where you will find him. Well, they went up to the city, and as they entered into the city, there was Samuel coming towards them to go up to the high place. The day before Shaul arrived, Adonai had given Samuel a revelation. Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the territory of Benjamin. You are to anoint him prince over my people Israel. He will save my people from the power of the Philistine, the Philistines. Because I have seen my people's situation and their cry of distress, distress has come to me. 
When Samuel saw Saul, Adonai said to him, Here's the man I told you about, the one who is going to govern my people. Shaul approached Samuel in the gateway and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul, I'm the seer. Go up ahead of me to the high place because you're going to dine with me today. In the morning, I will let you leave. And I will tell you everything that is on your heart. As for your donkeys that got lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They've been found. Now, who is it that all Israel wants? Isn't it you and all your father's household? And Saul replied, I'm only a man from Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel. My family is the least important of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin. Why, why are you saying such a thing to me? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the room and had them sit in the place reserved for the most important of the invited guests, who numbered about 30 persons. And Samuel instructed the cook, Serve the portion that I gave you and told you to set aside. And the cook took the thigh and the adjoining meat and served it to Shaul. And Samuel said, Here, this is what remains. Put it in front of you and eat. It was especially for you until the right time. Because I said, I have invited the people. So Saul dined with Samuel that day, and on coming down from the high place to the city, he spoke with, Sam, uh, with Saul on the roof. They got up early. About daybreak, Samuel called out to Shaul on the roof. He said, get up so I can send you on your way. And Shaul got up and both of them, he and Samuel, went out. And as they were going down at the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead. So the servant went on. But you, stand still now, because I want you to hear what God has said. The Lord apparently moved rather quickly to show Samuel the man whom was chosen to be the first king of Israel according to the wishes of the people. And so we're told that there was a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel. And then this genealogy continues in order to establish the lineage of Saul. And Kish is described in verse 1 of our complete Jewish Bibles as a man of substance and brave as well. Other versions say Kish was a mighty man of valor or a mighty man of power. Now, what's being translated is two Hebrew words used to describe the family of Kish. The first is Gibor, and the second is Chayil. And Gibor means mighty in the sense of being very physically strong. Chayil means to be very well-to-do, wealthy, with some political influence. So, Kish's family was part of the ruling clan of Benjamin, they were part of the tribal aristocrats. Now, Kish's son was Shaul, as I told you earlier, meaning the requested one. That is, he's the one, the king, providing an answer to the request from the people of Israel for a king. So, Shaul, Saul, is described as being young and good-looking, and that, in fact, he was among the people of Israel, perhaps the most handsome man of them all. Plus, he was the tallest 
of all the people. The word for people here is amim. And it means God's people. Not the people of all the nations. So he wasn't like the tallest man on earth or the tallest man in the Middle East. Now it's thought that he was perhaps around 40 years old at this time. Maybe a little bit younger. Now notice that God gave to Israel the exact kind of person with the characteristics that people prefer when left to their own inclinations to determine. He was charismatic. He was tall, handsome, strong, part of a prosperous and influential family. Outwardly, he had everything. The men would all have liked to be just like him. The women would all have liked to be with him. The Lord knew that Israel would take one look at Samuel's appointed king and revel in their newfound hope. Certain they had done the right thing by insisting on having a king just like their neighbors. Verse 3 begins the background story that explains how it is that God revealed his choice of Shaul to Samuel. And it is that several donkeys owned by Saul's father, Kish, vanished. And so Saul was sent on a mission to find him and bring him back. He was to take one of the family servants, it says, along with him. Actually, Saul was to take a Na'ar, a youth, with him. And while the youth may have been a servant, he wasn't a slave. Because the term Na'ar is not usually indicative of a slave, bonded or bought. Some think that this Na'ar might have been the family of Kish's chief household steward because he's going to display a lot of confidence and wisdom and a pretty comfortable familiarity with Saul. Further, we find that these donkeys that were lost were female donkeys because the word aton, which is the word used here for donkeys, is female. These were a herd of valuable female donkeys. And a lot of effort was going to be spent to find them. So Shaul took the young servant. They went into the hills of Ephraim to look for the donkeys. And after wandering around for a few days, they were becoming discouraged. Because there was no sign of these lost possessions. In fact, they were gone long enough that Saul figured that his father would soon start to be concerned about his and the boy's safety and didn't want to unduly worry him. Pretty soon they came to the territory of Suf. Now Suf was the family name of a clan of Levites. Ancestors, as a matter of fact, of Elkanah and Samuel. Somewhere in this area, Shaul made the decision to abandon the search. But his youthful servant that was with him suggested that they go to a nearby town and inquire if the local seer might be there and maybe he could help them find the donkeys. And here we see the term I told you about a few weeks ago that, that appears in the Bible as we enter the era of the prophets of God. And the term is man of God or in Hebrew 
Ish Elohim. Now, here's the thing. Just as the term Goyim has changed in its change in its usage and meaning over the centuries from, from being a generic word meaning nations, any nations, all nations, to indicating eventually only Gentile nations. And then finally, to even mean, and then to meaning Gentiles, and then finally to pagans living in the nations, changed form over time. So the term Ish Elohim, man of God, changed over time in its meaning. In its most primitive form, Ish Elohim referred to a holy man of some sort that had a set of mystical abilities. Later on, a seer was much like this Mesopotamian sorcerer Bilam that we learned about, who could see the future, and he could cast spells or, or put curses on people. And still later, this same term indicated a prophet, who was not so much a person who held special knowledge uh, or could see the future. Rather, used in the context of 1 Samuel 9, the meaning is more like a seer who has a supernatural ability to know things or perhaps even see the future as by means of a gift given from God. So Saul agrees that a seer might be helpful. Perhaps he could tell him where to look for these donkeys. And since it was customary to pay for a seer's services, that's how a seer made his living, and Saul had no money or other valuables with him, he knew they couldn't approach a seer empty-handed. They'd just be turned away. But the youth that was with him had a fourth of a shekel of silver on, of his own. And he offered it to his master, Saul to use to pay for the seer. Well, Saul changed his mind. And then rather than head home, they ventured into the city that was in the territory of Suf. Now, this city was built up on a hilltop. A rather usual place for a city because it could be more easily defended. And when they arrived, they stopped at the traditional place to ask for directions. The city well, where the girls went out to gather water. And there they asked some girls if the seer was there. And the girls pointed the way. And they informed Shaul and his companion that the seer was actually about to start sacrificing at the high place, the Bema, where the altar was located. And they needed to hurry because the ceremony was about to begin. Well, now we start to see how divine providence is going to play its role here. The two travelers, searching for those lost donkeys, arrive just in time for the feast that's going to be hosted by none other than Samuel. It turns out that Samuel is the seer that they were seeking, but they didn't know it. Now in this era... Samuel was called a prophet, a Navi. In fact, back in verse 9, the scriptural narrator explains the term seer, ra'ah, 
in Hebrew was becoming an outmoded term. And now the term Navi, prophet, was in use. Samuel, being a transitional figure, was kind of a cross between a Ra'ah and a Navi, a seer and a prophet. A prophet was a man who received God's oracle and then he would pronounce it either to the people or perhaps to a king depending on God's instructions to him. Usually what a prophet knew of the future was merely part of an overall message that God gave to him. A seer, on the other hand, was a professional holy man. And people would come to him and ask him questions like the whereabouts of something they lost or how a certain event might turn out. And often the seer could provide the answer for them, for a fee, of course. Anyway, this was a special kind of sacrificial and feast gathering whereby there would be honored guests present. And then after the sacrifice, the sacrificed animal would be eaten. Now here's where our Torah knowledge comes into play. The term sacrifice, as used in verse 13 where it speaks of the seer, Samuel, blessing the sacrifice is not wrong per se, but it misses an important nuance. The word being translated is seva. And seva is a particular kind of sacrifice. It's the kind that is a voluntary sacrifice. It's employed when making a vow or, or just giving thanks to God because of some good fortune in your life. It's also the kind whereby the worshiper gets the bulk of the meat from the sacrifice as opposed to all the other kinds of sacrifices whereby the priests get to keep the remainder that's not burned up on the altar. Therefore, it is appropriate that the seva, sacrificial animal or animals, would become the central meat dish for this sacrifice and then banquet for the several dignitaries that had come. Well, Samuel and his traveling companion walked up to the place of the feast, and there was, or rather Saul and his traveling companion, walked up to the feast, and there was Samuel. Now, this was all quite a surprise for Saul. And it must have had his mind spinning that, that Samuel was there, But you know what? Samuel had been expecting him. The day before Shaul had come seeking a person to help him find his father's donkeys, the Lord had told Samuel that the next day, the day Saul arrived, that he would send him a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who was to be appointed the Nahid. N-A-G-I-D, Nahid. Now this is a very interesting choice of words since Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Nagid generally means prince, like we see it in our complete Jewish Bibles, or chief, or captain, something like that. So, why this choice of words? Is there a problem here? Some think there is, but a little digging into history provides the solution. As it turns out, 
The term Nahid was a very common one that indicated the king in waiting. In other words, it refers to the man who was officially designated as the next king, but he hasn't yet been coronated. So there's no conflict. Shaul was the king designate, the Nahid, until the day he would actually be anointed king and enthroned, whereupon he became the Melech, the king. Verse 16 gives us an interesting tidbit of information. The trouble with the Philistines was beginning to crop up again. And Saul was going to be the one to deal with it. And we were told in earlier chapters that as long as Samuel lived, the Philistines were subdued. So what we're seeing here is that while peace was the, with the Philistines was still in place while Samuel was judging, there was some saber-rattling beginning to occur. Samuel was getting old. And the tribal and clan leaders were losing their confidence in him. And tensions between Israel and the Philistines were building. One cannot help but wonder if this was perhaps... This, this, this growing threat of a, of a rejuvenated Philistia, this coupled with the less than vibrant leadership of the age of Samuel, that it was this that was triggering these some kind of anxious response from these Israelite tribal delegates that went to confront Samuel and seek his replacement with a king. They were worried. There were likely growing doubts among the twelve tribes that Samuel was any longer capable of leading Israel to defend against formidable enemies. Nor did he have the energy and the influence to call for the tribes to send a militia of troops to fight and, and that perhaps a professionally trained national army like one that would be led by a warrior king was the best possible preparation for what seemed like an inevitable war with the Philistines. And it would occur in just a matter of time. When Samuel laid eyes on Saul, the Lord verified that this is indeed the chosen one. Now interestingly, Saul didn't seem to know who Samuel was. At least he didn't know what he looked like. Because Saul walks up to Samuel and asks him if he knew where the seer was staying. And when Samuel identified himself as the seer, he also invited Shaul to sit with him at the banquet table. And then the next morning he, he'd tell Saul what he'd hoped to find out, the location of his father's donkeys. Now, where the complete Jewish Bibles and most, say, and most Bibles say that Samuel will tell Saul what is on his heart, that is not at all meant to convey what it sounds like to us Westerners. This is not a troubled Saul who wants to have his inmost feelings exposed. Okay, Rather, remember... That in the Bible, the function of the heart is what we today know as the brain. 
Okay. Samuel was actually saying, in modern terms, that he'd tell Saul what was on his mind. And what was on Saul's mind was finding donkeys so he could go home. So when Samuel tells Saul to stop worrying about the donkeys, that they've already been found, it's done in kind of a dismissive way. Don't worry about it. Saul was about to have a lot weightier things to deal with than a handful of scattered donkeys. Then Samuel breaks the news to Saul by asking him rhetorically, Who is it that all of Israel is longing for? Isn't it you and your father's household? Now while that may be kind of a cryptic comment to us, Saul knew instantly what Samuel was suggesting. Every person in Israel knew the answer to who is it that all of Israel is longing for. It's a king that they're longing for. So Saul offers a stunned reply that also embraces typical Middle Eastern grace and humility. He says, well, I'm only a man from Benjamin, one of the smaller tribes. And further, his family is one of the least important. From a tribal standpoint, Saul's clan is indeed the ruling clan of Benjamin, but his family is but one of the many who form this clan. And at least in Saul's mind, it was not among the most influential of the clan's families. Well, the banquet was about to begin. It was taking place inside some kind of structure that had been built for the purpose. And Samuel led Saul into the dining room and he placed him at the table that was reserved for only the most important guests, of which 30 were identified as special guests of honor that were going to sit with Samuel. Samuel orders the cook to serve Saul the thigh and the shoulder. Some translations will say leg. Doesn't matter. These are all attempting to get across that this was the absolute choicest cut. And the one to whom it was served was being shown great honor by receiving it. See, the right thigh and leg was reserved for the priests. So what was the left thigh and leg that was being given to Saul? Samuel makes it clear that this was reserved for Saul before Samuel even knew who was going to receive it. And even that it would be offered in front of this room full of dignitaries was to serve a divine purpose of announcing to this group that this man was to be Israel's king. Well, after the festivity, Samuel and Saul walked down to the city from the Bemah, the high place. Then they went up to a rooftop, rooftop to uh, have a talk. Now, no doubt Samuel was speaking to Saul about the great things that would be expected of him and of the wicked state of the people of Israel that Saul was now duty-bound to remedy. The next morning, Samuel woke Saul and told him it was time for him to go. But first, something important had to be discussed. And so Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead so they could speak in private. 
Saul was about to be told what it was that God said was to be done. And Samuel would assume the role of God's prophet who would be the one to deliver the Lord's history-changing ruling to the first king of Israel.